In My Teacher's Footsteps, Chapter 10, read by Nick Scott, The Pilgrims to Mankailash Complete. Our pilgrims are returning home. Nick has questions which lead eventually to a trip to Thailand to ask Ajahn Sumedho about his pilgrims and the effect. Chapter 10 Inquiring Within Two buses, one orange, one blue. Tourist buses, with the usual swirls of colourful decoration that adorn all buses in Nepal. Each had a large white banner tied across its front, beneath the window, proclaiming in Nepali where they were going and why. I was standing outside Vishwar Shanti Vihar in Kathmandu and the buses were nearly ready to depart, 30 minutes late. The first was filled with monastics, the second with lay people, both often three to a seat. The last lay arrivals were still being squeezed aboard the second bus, clambering in, carrying small stools to be placed down the aisles for them to sit on. I stood with the others who were to be left behind, one younger monk, a nun who hadn't been here last time we stayed, a few excited young novices and half a dozen lay people. My three monastic companions were aboard the first bus, in the second row of seats behind two senior Napoli monks on one side and the three young nuns who had taken care of us on the driver's side. Chris had left us as soon as we crossed the border so he could at last do something for himself, two days walking alone in the Napoli mountains and Rory had opted to stay in the tourist area of Tamil when we got back to Kathmandu, already planning the meal he'd have in a pizza restaurant. So this goodbye was going to be significant. Although the buses would be back from Trisuli the following afternoon, after the celebrations there, the 50th anniversary of something educational, by then I would be at the airport for my flight home so I was about to wave goodbye to the last of my companions. We'd arrived in Kathmandu two days before, having been given a ride from the border in an old bus waiting there for Roger and his group of Slovakian women. The border had been a startling change of cultures. We'd driven down to it in our little minibus, descending the steep, narrow valley of the Sonkosi River from Nyalam on the edge of the Tibetan Plateau, where we'd stayed the night in a Chinese hotel, with me lying awake again, this time listening to thumping music from the hotel's nightclub. Tibetan towns might be noisy, but the Chinese ensure they're orderly. The countryside is also regulated, 
the small villages and fields of young rye which had appeared when we reached the river's upper reaches had stopped precisely at the town's edge no urban spread here and no one at all was allowed between the town and the border instead it was fabulous pristine montane forest dripping with climbers and flowering epiphytic plants i'd have loved to spend a day walking down that road not that the Chinese would have let me. We'd said goodbye to Doji at the Chinese border buildings after he'd explained what we had to do at the border. But there was no need really, as everything on the Chinese side was so regulated. Large notices with pictures indicating each stage. Tibetans and Nepalis and a scattering of Westerners stood patiently in long queues before each of these. At the customs desk, a Western couple were being interrogated about a map in their guidebook which had incorrect borders for China. We'd been warned that you must carry nothing showing either Tibet or Taiwan as a separate country. As we crossed to Nepal, the first half of the road bridge was crowded with Nepalis staggering along with vast loads strapped to their head, or coming back towards us to collect more. Men, women, some with babies, even grandmothers. But they were still being controlled by two Chinese policemen standing in the middle. Beyond them was a large scrum of people pressing to be allowed to pass, and beyond that, unstructured chaos. On the bridge's far side, there was no indication where immigration was. Down the street in a side building, Roger had warned us. Or customs, and no one checking we had stopped at either. There was just teeming crowds, noise, shops, and a long line of waiting lorries. We were in the pool. Roger's bus felt so spacious after our little lesser vehicle, and the scenery so different. Every slope not too steep was terraced with paddy fields, and the near vertical slopes had no real forest, just rock with some scrub or a few trees hanging from places animals couldn't reach. We wound our way down the valley, gazing out at Nepal, as the valley slowly broadened out allowing paddy fields by the river. Then the rattling bus climbed up and out of the river valley, passing more sophisticated buildings, and into the wide, rolling Kathmandu Valley. In Kathmandu City, Roger wanted to drop us a mile from the Vihara to avoid bad traffic. Would we mind? Although it was raining, no one had a problem. My companions were happy to walk. And they did enjoy it, positively delighting at walking at a much lower altitude, bowling along in a line ahead of me on the roadside, full packs on their backs and chatting happily, exclaiming at how easy it felt. All, that is, except me. I felt like the wet blanket at a party again. I was tired, fed up, and I'd still just wanted to go home. Two days rest at the Vihara, actually sleeping all night long, improved my humour enough to manage polite society, 
but after waving goodbye to the two buses and my companions, when they finally left nearly an hour late, I was still pleased I hadn't been able to join them and could instead return to my room, a room I had to myself at last. Later, I went out to the local shopping district looking to treat myself. I found a bakery with a cafe I'd not noticed before, a garden with tables at the back, away from the roar and hooting of the traffic. There I had a coffee and a slice of cake. Sitting somewhere pleasant, it felt so therapeutic. I sat there for two hours, just enjoying doing this for me. During this, I asked myself several times, What's this all been about? But nothing came. Instead, there was just a quiet enjoyment of each moment. On the journey back from Kailash, I'd been asking myself the same question. It was my turn to sit in the front seat of the minibus. In the dull state I'd been in for this whole trip, I'd let everyone else have their turn first. Now, sitting there, watching the wide scenery pass by, driving east over a vast, dry, stony outwash plain that ran up to the Himalayas, I finally had enough vitality to appreciate it. And I kept asking myself, why? But there'd been no reply then either. There was simply the line of white peaks, crystal clear, set in a white blue sky. We drove beside them for much of two days, Rory naming Annapurna and Dolagiri, which were slightly higher than the rest. Roger later told us that it was the clearest view he'd ever had. At one point, we dropped into the valley of the river Tsangpo, which eventually becomes the mighty Brahmaputra in India. Here, it was just a small river with a Tibetan village, rye fields and dry, stony valley sides. On one slope were the ruined remains of a large Buddhist monastery with a few restored buildings. We'd been asked to stop at this monastery by a Tibetan monk who Ajahn Amaro had met at a European conference. The monk, now the teacher at a Tibetan centre in Italy, had asked if we might deliver money to his uncle. He'd sent me 200 American dollars, which I'd been carrying for the whole pilgrimage. Even at the time of the Cultural Revolution, 86 monks had still lived in the accommodation blocks, which were now piles of rubble. There were just five here now, all in their twenties except for their teacher, the uncle, plus a Tibetan plain-clothed policeman that Dorji quietly warned us about. The young monks took us to see the uncle, their teacher, who must have been in his eighties. They had to help him into the room and relay Dolge's questions in a loud voice. 
They also helped him receive the ceremonial Kartak scarf Ajahn Amro offered. But the old monk was still a blessing to the valley, a peaceful presence. Haltingly, he told Dorji that he'd returned from Nepal in the 1980s for a visit to the ruined monastery he'd fled during the Cultural Revolution. He'd only come back to see his mother before she died, but the villagers had begged him to stay, and so he couldn't leave. His nephew, who'd recently become a monk in Nepal, sent Buddhist images and money to help rebuild the temple and a few other buildings. The same nephew, now based in Italy, had sent the $200. I presented that money formally. I wanted to honour that story. On my knees I bowed three times, and still on my knees I handed the envelope to the old monk. Rory taking a photo to send to Italy. Afterwards, outside, Rory also took a group photo of our monks standing with the young Tibetan ones. They had exclaimed with delight at the first meeting, Dorji told us, saying that our monks were like Shakyamuni Buddha. They were so kind around their teacher. But as I stood there, I couldn't help but reflect that he wasn't much longer for this world. And then what? I was overcome with sadness about what had been done to the Tibetans. I remembered Stephen telling us of his visit to the great Sierra monastery outside of Lhasa, where his teacher had come from. How he'd found lots of boys and a handful of old monks, and them asking him to teach them which he'd found heartrending. And I was asking that question again. Why? What was it all about? That day, crossing a pass, we came upon undulating dunes of fine sand. Everyone wanted to stop at this mini Sahara. Dorji and the driver climbed the highest dune, looking like two desert explorers, to take pictures of each other on top. The others wandered about in the same playful state, but I could only think of how the dunes weren't natural. They'd been caused by overgrazing. That was something a semi-desert like Western Tibet was particularly susceptible to. Those dunes also made me reflect on how most of the habitat we'd been amidst was equally degraded by grazing. That was why it was just stony wasteland. Another story Stephen told us came to me, of looking for a monastery on their journey back to Kathmandu when he visited Tibet for a second time in 1997. I was trying to find the main monastery of the Jongyong Park, they used to be a big noise in central Tibet and were condemned by the Tsongkhapa as heretics. They had some of the greatest scholars until the Galukpa came along and wiped them out. Their main monastery apparently still existed, so I figured where it was on the map and we left the main road. When we couldn't find it, we camped and had lunch out on this huge, vast, empty plain except for this little black dot, which we just watched as we ate. It came slowly towards us, and, until we realised it was a shepherd, 
now surrounded by lots of other smaller dots. And eventually, as we finished, he arrived, and being Western Buddhists, we gave him a picture of the Dalai Lama. And he says, who's he? So the driver replies, I still remember the phrase. It translates, if you really want a Lama, this is your man. So then we asked him about his life and found that he and his family had been doing the same thing for centuries. Basically, get up in the morning, take your flock and set off round the mountain. The Chinese invasion, everything, hadn't affected him at all. Hardly knew about it. Most of Tibet must still be like that today. It was such grazing for centuries which had created the habitat of stony bare ground with a few low thorny shrubs. Stephen also told me about the forests that had once lined the valleys in Tibet. The 14th century records of some of the great monasteries describe disputes with other monasteries over their ownership. That was their fuel and building timber. Eventually, they must have cut them all down. The trees would have lined the sides of valleys, like the bare one we'd just stopped in. The next day, we stopped for our lunch by a lake. By then, we were driving over the dry, outwashed plain again, on a wide dirt track that cut across to the road from Lhasa to Kathmandu. At the lake, we followed the shore until we came to a small stream flowing between banks of short grass. I could see why Roger had recommended stopping here. It was the only pleasant place we'd passed on the entire journey. The rest of the journey was through scenery spectacular to look at, but desolate to stop amidst. Roger arrived soon after we'd unpacked with his party of Slovakian women in another minibus. We had our picnics together with the monks chanting a blessing, the distant white Himalayas in the background. It made a lovely scene. One that was completely ruined ten minutes later when four coaches of Indian pilgrims stopped for their lunch. They were on their way to Kailash, they told us excitedly, as they swarmed over the grass, taking pictures of the mountains, the lake and us. That evening, when we arrived at Nyalan and another modern concrete Chinese hotel, I ignored both Dorje's warnings about what we could do there and the rest of the party's reluctance to join me and I climbed slowly out of the town up to the alpine grasslands I'd spotted just above the road on the way in. My questioning had turned into a determination to do something for myself. The hillside was awash with flowers, delicate hanging fritillaries, dark blue gentians, tufts of edelweiss, and both yellow and pink primroses. The same sense of rebellion was also why I was so intolerant of a comment Chris made next morning when travelling down the valley through that pristine forest. Until then I'd managed to remain polite with my companions, despite what I'd been going through. But when Chris says something romantic and uplifting about the wildlife and the local people, I had to put him right. 
That's complete rubbish, Chris. We're looking at some of the very last untouched forest in all the Himalayas. Only left here because the Chinese are so paranoid about the border that they have banned people from entering it. Of course, I then regretted it. But in Kathmandu, the rebellion had passed, leaving again just the question of why. When I returned from the cafe, I got talking to a monk I'd not seen before. He was middle-aged and quite senior. He told me that he lived in a kuti, a one-room building for monks, around the back of the Vihara, and that his name was Upananda with one P. He was a Brahmin by birth, not a Nawari Buddhist, and had become a Buddhist monk to practice meditation, which he'd done in various monasteries around Burma. In his gentle voice he explained how he now stayed here, continuing to practice and helping out in the Vihara when needed, like now with the other monks off on the coach trip. But not all the time. There's too much activity here. He was not interested in all the study they did, he told me. When you understand, you don't need teacher, just need to do. Yes. You don't need technique, you just need to sit. Yes. Then this life, all this life, is for learning. Yes, Bhante. And it takes courage. And he gave me a little nod. I spent the remainder of that day on the flat roof with a tray of tea brought to me by the lone nun. The sun had just set, evening was gathering, and here and there house lights were coming on. There I became enfolded in a great sense of peace. The pilgrimage was over, my companions gone. I was going home the next day. It was done. From this peaceful perspective, it didn't matter what it had all been about. It was just this. The traffic passing on the main road nearby, the city in the half-light, the dark outline of the trees by the river, the cool air after the hot day. There is just this, and this is all there ever is. Looking back, I could see that I'd never looked forward to the pilgrimage. I'd always known it was going to be really, really hard. And it was. But it was simply something that had to be done. It arises, one bows to it, one accepts it, one simply does it. Beyond the suburb of houses opposite, Planes were taking off into the night, their lights tracking up and away. This Vihara had once been a small house with a monk and a few novices living by the river out of town on the quiet road to the airport. Now it was an institution in the midst of a noisy, polluted metropolis. Tibetan Buddhism was once just a few hermits living in caves, it grew into vast institutions which honoured them as saints. Then it was devastated by the Chinese. The planet's nature, the incredibly rich green mantle we humans grew up in, 
is steadily being degraded. Each subsequent generation now has to mourn as more of it steadily goes during their lifetime. Everything that arises passes away. If we can accept this is how it is, then there is one thing that doesn't change, and that's the perspective I felt enveloped in that night. The this is how it isness. The planes taking off were flying west under a new moon. Ajahn Sumedha would constantly say about monasteries and the monastic order that these are merely conventions. As well as providing a lifestyle for the practice of the Buddhist teachings, they became an institution, like the Catholic Church, that carries and projects the teachings through time. The Tibetan system of reincarnated Tulkuls, or Rinpoches, did that well. But as Stephen pointed out, it was usually only the two Tulkuls in a monastery who got the opportunity to practice those teachings. By the time the Chinese destroyed the monasteries in Tibet, Tibetan Buddhism seemed to have become a cultural set of beliefs, a wonderful one that supported what now, looking back, seems an amazing society. But in that society, the heart of the practice had mostly been pressed out of it by the weight of all that elaborate ritual and concern with power. Everything that arises passes away. That even goes for the Buddhist teachings themselves. They too are just conventions. They are not themselves the end of suffering. Pema Rikshaw Rinpoche told us, Sunyati is powerful. It leads to many miracles. Call the miracles grace if you want. So much is made of these in Tibetan Buddhism and in most religions. But such powerful things are simply effects. And if you make too much of them, as the Buddha never did, you end up worshipping the memory of an effect, rather than focusing on what caused it. Planes taking off, flying west under a new moon, as I would be the following evening. By the time I got home, battered by a long-haul flight to London, crammed into an economy seat, then travelling from there to the west of Ireland, the resolution and the resulting perspective I had on the Vihara's roof had completely gone. Instead, there was just the trauma of what I'd been through. Mish was relieved to have me back, whatever I was like. She'd become convinced I was going to die in Tibet. And it wasn't just her. A friend who'd asked me to lay an offering scarf on Dolmala had woken one night knowing I'd died on the pass. Mish said my eyes were dead for the first two months. For me, the trauma manifested as the wish not to engage or to meet people. 
I spent much of that time rebuilding old stone walls in the fields. If anyone came to visit, I'd slip off and Mish would have to apologise and explain. As a result, I pulled my back, but at least the trauma slowly ebbed. Eventually I felt normal again, but I still couldn't begin writing this account of the pilgrimage, as I'd intended. I didn't want to even think about it. Eight months after my return, I did my annual one-month retreat in Connemara, at the same cottage at the base of the same mountain where I'd originally conceived the notion of a pilgrimage to Holy Kailash, following in Ajahn Sumedha's footsteps. For all of that month, I was re-engulfed in the traumatic state I'd brought home with me, enduring a mind that didn't want to engage, struggling constantly against lethargy and dullness. On the first day walking by the sea, I slipped on the rocks, cut my head and sprained my ankle badly. So I also spent most of the month limping and with my head bandaged. A few days before the month's end, the trauma finally lifted. The bandage and limp had gone and I could walk along the beach feeling free, exulting in the wind and waves. I had re-found the relief I'd had in the Kathmandu cafe and I realised that I could now write this account of the pilgrimage. But I also came back to that question. Why? What was it all about? I had trusted the notion I should go to Kailash because the idea had arisen in such a powerful way on the mountain during the previous retreat and seemingly despite my own wishes. I'd bowed to it, accepted it. But all it had resulted in was a hell of a lot of pain. And just one evening of relief and perspective on the Vihara roof. Was that all? Surely it had been about more than that. So I resolved that once I'd written the first draft, I'd go out to Thailand to see Ajahn Sumedha, my teacher, and ask him... Why? A year and a half later, I travelled to Wat Pa Ratanawan, where Ajahn Sumedho lived. It's a monastery I already knew well, because of the abbot, Ajahn Yanadamo. The first time I'd seen it, it was just a small patch of forest on a corner of Khao Yai National Park. That was in 2007, on a trip I made to visit the western Ajahn Chah monasteries in Thailand. Ratanawan had been suggested to me as an afterthought. Ajahn Yana's got some land at the back of the park, I think he's making a monastery, but it's only him and a couple of Thai monks. But it still counted as something Western in the Ajahn Chah tradition, so I stopped by at the end of my tour. I found Ajahn Yana was a large bluff Australian, very practical and immersed in a project to re-landscape the land and construct a monastery. As that's what I've been doing for the past 10 years, we got on well. 
He told me how happy he was to be responsible for an excavator rather than training 30 Western monks. He'd just stepped down as the abbot of the main Western monastery, Wat Pa Nanachat, and still seemed bruised by the experience. We stood together in a swamp, talking over his plans to convert the swamp to lakes, surrounded by forests that's to be planted on the farmland beyond the swamp. The lakes would keep the forest cool and stop the mosquitoes, which can't breed in permanent water because of the fish. And up there will be a sala, the meditation hall, he pointed at the top of the slight rise, where the air can blow through it. It was all so sensible. Planting a new forest adjacent to the national park would mean the plants and animals from there would easily colonise. Using this land as a forest monastery would stop much of the incursions from the park by large wild animals that the villagers were suffering. And his influence could stop the villagers poaching. I was deeply impressed. Ajahnyana also told me why he was only now able to start the work. We bought the swamp a year back, but I needed the place between it and what we had. When I asked the fellow, he wanted like 30 times the going price, which was outrageous. And he also insisted we buy all his land, including some across the road. He pointed up to the entrance I'd arrived through, and I was totally uninterested in going across the road. I could see no use for it. So end the story. Then one of the Thai monks here, Tan Moshe, went with another monk to see Long Po Piem in Chiang Mai. He's 97 and is supposed to have contact with the Devatas. They're the Buddhist angels, which Thais are so keen on. As soon as Tam Moshi told him where they were from, Long Paw put the flat of his hand down like this, and he put his other hand down like this, and he said, this is the land you have, and this is the piece of land in the middle you don't have, and it goes across the road. On the piece of land across the road, there are two trees, one a really big straight tree, and the other is a bent tree under it. And in that tree there's a resonant deity, and the abbot hasn't been to get his approval. If he goes to the deity, he doesn't need candles, incense and flowers. He just needs to go there, put his hands in Angeli, and say, if the resonant deity would help to make this land a monastery, he will share the merit with the deity, and it will be of long-lasting benefit. Well, all I could say was, okay, let's take a look. We'd never been over there, had no idea what was there, but we wandered over, and there were two trees, like he said, one big and straight, the other bent. So then I had to go along with it, put aside my scepticism and ask for approval. Like he said, within a week, the fella comes back. I hadn't seen him since the first time, a year ago, and he says he wants to sell the land at the going price. 
He told me his 87-year-old mother had said the Boston monks had lots of money and he had to ask that price. But since then she's died and he's been feeling sad about her actions. So he also wanted to donate the land over the road for the benefit of his mother. Now I've decided to build a women's section there. I came back to Wat Pa Ratuan a year later on a trip showing Mish the monasteries I'd stayed in. We found Ajanyana supervising a large bulldozer using a thalotolite to level the new land. Mish still refers to him today as Earth-moving monk. Then, several years later, when it was announced that Ajahn Sumedho was to retire to Thailand, put down his various burdens and stay in a kuti built for him, location not to be disclosed, I knew where it must be. Where better than overlooking one of those lakes with the forest of Khao Yai National Park rising behind it? And who better to build it for him? Then the year before I went to Kailash, Mish and I stopped off to see Ajahn Sumedho there. Ajahn Yana told me then that Ajahn Sumedho had been for a visit two years before. He was absolutely battered with all the troubles happening at Amaravati then. And I thought I'd be in a bad state. I really felt how tired he was. And he says, you know, I'd like to come back to Thailand one day. I think he was wandering in the forest, just the two of us, which got him to say it. He told me that he'd never envisaged going back to the West, that Ajahn Char wanted him to go. Deep down, he'd like to come back before he died. It was very moving. So I thought, what would Ajahn Chah want me to do? So I said I'd build him a cootie with no expectation he had to use it. He just said thanks then, but the next day he said he'd seriously consider it. And literally, the last nail was banged in ten minutes before his car pulled up. A year later. Akuti is the name for the little wooden huts in the forest in which Buddhist monks can reside. But of course this was much more substantial than those. It does have wooden tiles to the roof and a long roofed wooden walkway leading from the road to the front door. But actually it's a little two-story house on a slope so that from the track you enter the upper floor where Ajahn Sumedho lives. The lower floor is laid out so that one day an attendant can live there should Ajahn Sumedho need caring for. Ajahn Yana has thought of everything. On that visit with Mish, a year after he'd moved in, I felt such joy for Ajahn Sumedho. He told us how he just potted about, occasionally went on arms round with the monks, but had no responsibilities, no teaching. He said there was no sense of time at all. There is also a magnificent sala at Ratanawan now, built on the rise Ajanyanya pointed out, in the traditional style that dates from before Thai temples turned bright red and gold. It's made mostly of reddish-brown teak, giant posts each made from a whole tree, rising to a wooden ceiling, with wooden tiles covering stepped 
layered ruse that curved down and out in that distinctive Thai way, each face with a carved wooden board. It's breathtakingly beautiful. The floor is marble, but the temple is surrounded by teak decking to create a platform which looks out over the largest of the lakes to the mature trees in the national park beyond. And all those planted trees Ajanyano planned are now semi-mature and producing fruit, so that hornbills have moved into the monastery to nest. He's introducing wild orchids and tree ferns to the forest now, planting rattans and other tropical climbers. The monastery is growing too. There are 14 monks, mostly young, educated Thais from Bangkok, several with doctorates. They appreciate Ajanyano's Western understanding of their traditional teachings. But they must be much easier to train than Westerners. Ajanyana does the Thai Ajahn well. Walking slowly round the monastery, a young monk or two, or one of the lay workers in attendance, sorting problems, or sitting in the sala, leaning back on a cushion receiving visitors, making the locals laugh with some comment, or explaining the teachings to new people from afar. And Ajahn Samedo is left undisturbed, tucked away in a private part of the new woodland. I arrived at Wat Pa Ratanawan during the last week of the rainy season. Every few days, dark, rumbling clouds would build over the Khao Yai hills in the afternoon. I'd hear the rain coming as a roar through the trees before it poured down for several hours. Over four of those afternoons, I met Ajahn Samedo in his kuti. The main room looks out onto its own lake built where that swamp once was. One side wall had become a large shrine since my last visit, with six reclining Buddha images. Ajahn Samedo sat on a wide seat facing it. After I bowed to the shrine, he explained the reclining images. It shows my age. I spent a week at Kushinara last year, where the Buddha passed away. I found the reclining Buddha there so peaceful, so they made me one out of marble. Presumably the five others were given by Thai supporters when they found out what he liked. They really know how to look after old monks in Thailand. Ajahn Yana Dharma has been very good to me here. I've always wanted to live like this. During those four afternoons we talked of all manner of things recalling those walks we did together, characters we both knew, difficult times we'd shared, his new plans, he'd recently decided to teach again and had agreed to lead a 10-day retreat in Brazil, and I gave him a slideshow on Mish's small laptop I'd brought with me. We looked at the photos from his two pilgrimages to Kailash, and those taken by Ajahn Amro and Rory of ours. There was enough time to ask all my questions. I recorded everything 
and then diligently transcribed it while staying at the monastery, sitting outside the small room they'd given me in a building in the forest. Ajahn Samedo is referred now as Long Poor, Venerable Father, the name Thais have for very senior monks. I started by asking him how his first Mount Kailash pilgrimage came to happen. Well, it arose with Sugato, the idea of a trip, and he knew Andrew Yates and... Yes, Longpaw, but how did you come to want to go? I'd always known about the Holy Mountain. That pilgrimage was a dream I had, but I never thought I'd get to go. So when did that dream date from? Well, I did a Master's in Indian Cultural Studies at Berkeley. I was particularly interested in the religious side. So I'd studied Tibetan Buddhism, Shiva worship, Aurobindo Goshi, Theosophical Society, all that stuff. And I loved Lama Govindo's book, Way of the White Clouds. Studying Eastern religion in the 1950s must have been pretty unusual. I'd had this fascination with Asia ever since I was a little child, for some unaccountable reason. We didn't grow up with an Asian people, and the part of Seattle I lived in, it was all middle-class white people. But somehow I always had that as attraction. My first memory is of an old lady who used to take care of my sister and I when my mother was away. She had a calendar. I was very young then three, four, and she had this beautiful calendar with Mount Fujiyama. She was American, but she collected curiosities. Later, if I went through Chinatown, or if I saw anything Chinese or Japanese. So then I did a degree in Chinese history at University of Washington in Seattle in 51. We had Chinese professors who just escaped communism in China in 49. So we had the best. There were very few places you could study that. So I was lucky to be born in Seattle. That's when I got to understand Buddhism. Then I knew this was what I was looking for. Before that, it was just general, anything China. The word China was the stimulating word. But then when I discovered Buddhism, I was not interested in Chinese history and all the other stuff. Then I met Zen Buddhism in Japan when I was in the Navy. That was a year later. Wow, so long before you became a monk, you knew Kailash as the holy mountain for Hindus and Buddhists. Yes, Lord Shiva's up there. And he gave me one of his knowing smiles. I then told Ajahn Sumedha that Andrew Yates had, in fact, already met him. How after Andrew's first trip to Mount Kailash in the 1980s, he'd been so inspired he'd become a novice monk at Wat Parnanachat, the monastery for Westerners founded originally by Ajahn Sumedho. He didn't tell me that. He said he only met you the once when you were visiting from England, so you wouldn't recall him. But I suspect it's also because he was embarrassed he'd left. He said he couldn't cope with the heat. Ah. Andrew's a Davita. He likes heavenly realms, he said with a laugh. So he wouldn't be good at putting up with the unpleasant states of mind. 
But as we looked through the slides taken of their pilgrimage trip, showing the group walking up through Humla, Arjun Samedo really praised Andrew, saying what a good walk leader he'd been, always there to keep an eye on him, and on Anne, who was struggling. Not off to the front like Sukato, who just wanted a bliss out on the place. The other two themes of his comments, as we looked through those slides, were how pleasant and harmonious a group they all were, and how wonderful the trek had been. I was surprised just how much he enjoys looking at them and the memories they brought back for him. That hadn't occurred to me. I thought of my visit as an imposition. It can be like that when you're around your teacher. You can forget they're just the same as everyone else. It's really beautiful. Look at that. It was like going back centuries, Nick. I've no regrets. You know, it was worth going just for that trek through Humla. I really enjoyed it. Then, when we got to the final part, inside Tibet, I asked him to describe what he remembered had happened. Well, there were no guards at the border, so we thought that was a good sign. Then at the immigration office in the town, it seemed like we'd got through. But then they changed their mind. And how did that feel? I felt disappointed. We'd formed such a nice group. It felt like being taken away from a family. Everyone was crying. I think even some of the Chinese guards were crying. So all those emotions I felt. But what could you do? You don't argue with men with guns. Sugato and I were escorted back by guards with rifles on an army vehicle. They took us to the Nepal border and dumped us there. We had to walk across the bridge with our gear and camp on the other side of the river. There were no houses there then, no tea shops, as on our trip. The next morning, all the Sherpas had was a packet of cornflakes for the four of us. So how much cornflakes did you get? A bowl. It was like the old Weetabix commercials. Ajahn Samedo, weak and exhausted, is given a bowl of cornflakes and climbs the mountain. And he roared with laughter. Then he told me, as Anne already had, that he'd taken a personal vow to ask for nothing on the pilgrimage, but had then told Andrew that he'd prefer not to have cornflakes and hot milk for breakfast. And he now felt this final difficulty was a karmic result of breaking his vow. It was a very hard climb. That's the climb back the others did in the snow. It is far longer and steeper than any single climb coming the other way. Getting near the top, I was exhausted. Nothing left. And there was this Tibetan woman and her son, refugees. She was making Tibetan tea with yaks butter and salt, and she wanted to give me some. That's what got me to the top. They camped on the far side of the pass, and the Sherpas found food from a village for their next day. From there, they walked down the valley to Yaobang Monastery. The head lama had invited us to stay, but then as we approached, 
there was this donut-shaped cloud, huge, that seemed really ominous to both Sukato and I. We had this dark, gloomy feeling. Then it started to rain. It seemed as if it was waiting for us to get to the monastery. Once we were there, it really poured. It's not supposed to rain at that time of year, and it must never rain like that, because after a few days, the roof started to cave in. But the head lama gave us a room above the new temple, which had a tin roof. The old buildings there had flat mud roofs. He also invited us to sleep with him in his house, which was very nice, but after the first day, even his roof started to leak and cave in. So the rest of the monastery was a disaster. The new toilets, the accommodation, all the roofs collapsing, except the new temple. Sugato and I were in a room meditating and looking out at the rain. You couldn't be more thankful for a tin roof in your life. The head lama was the one who asked me about Monica Lewinsky, he laughed. That was a real shock. I thought they were completely cut off from the world. But he was incredibly good to us, really looked out for us. He was an important figure there. No one wants to live in Humla. A Nepalese doctor told me, Humla, that's the posting that we all didn't want. That head lama could have been down in Kathmandu with Westerners making a fuss of him. By the time our party got there, not only had Pema Rikshaw Rinpoche put tin roofs on all the other buildings, but he'd built a large school and clinic too. The day Andrew came back, we guessed they were coming because the sun came out. We thought they'd had a wonderful time while we'd been stuck there in the rain, but then they told us the mule had died and the cook nearly died, and Andrew said, I'm so pleased you weren't with us, Ajahn, because you could have died. So now I thank the communist Chinese for looking after me. And he chuckled at that. And the rest of the walk back? It felt good to be with him again. We'd really bonded. I showed him the slides of them walking down the Humla Valley together under blue skies. Oh yes, I remember that. Very pleasant. But then the final climb up to Simicon, I kept on thinking this is the top, but it never was. Then when we got to the top, there was a tea shop. Oh, I still remember that cup of tea. Lord Poor, what about these strange coincidences that happen? Like you and the cornflakes, or Ajahn Amaro and his connection with the Nyingma. When the Buddha said there is much I know and do not teach, is this the kind of thing he was referring to? Yes, the rational mind is very limited, you know. When you try to think with logic and reason, that's where faith takes over. Then you can open up to the unknown. A lot of life is just not rational or reasonable. But it is the way it is. That's what I've had to deal with as a scientist, I told him. Opening up to the fact I can't understand everything. It's actually really helped me, because if I can't explain these odd coincidences, well, really I can't explain any of it, and I have to give up. Like the balloon ride for your 60th birthday. Do you recall that? Oh, do I ever? 
I had the idea you'd like a balloon ride and suggested it to the Harnham Monastery Trust. But I was asked, how did I know you'd like it? So the Trust got you a garden bench. Sam Ford, he then said he'd share the cost with me. But then we checked it out and it was way too expensive for the two of us. That's because the flight had to start at Chittas when you came down for a meeting, as it was all so busy then. So we would have to hire a whole balloon, not just one place in a regular trip. So we gave up. Then, a week later, I was sitting in the Chitta shrine room, the old one, gazing up at the golden Buddha in the evening meditation, something I used to do then. And there was this noise. I knew it was a hot air balloon coming over the house. Then it filled the bay window behind the Buddha until it was just the golden Buddha and this colourful balloon behind him. I realised it must be landing in the monastery's field and all the hairs on the back of my neck went up. I got up in the middle of the evening sitting. I felt like some kind of zombie. I was in such shock. I went out there and I helped them pack it up. Then I said to this little chap, still feeling weirdly disconnected, It's our teacher's 60th birthday and I want to get him a balloon ride. Could you do it? And he said he'd love to. So I asked how much. Oh, it would be free. I landed here last year and the monk showed me around. Way, that's a good one, he laughed. And there was Ajahn Anek and Ajahn Pasano. Yes, all those visiting senior monks and abbots who were there for that big meeting. That's why I wasn't going to go myself. Senior monks have been coming up all week and asking me, <clears throat> Nick, uh, how many can the balloon take? So I knew they all wanted to go. But then I was reprimanded by another monk who did not want to go, for being irresponsible. If the balloon crashed, they'd all be killed and he'd be left in charge. So I thought if that happened, I'd better die with you all. Ajahn Sumedho laughed a lot at this. Then he recalled, It was a wonderful ride. We flew over Petersfield, all those people looking up and waving. And high enough to see the sea, I added. Then low and skimming just above the woodland, I saw a sparrowhawk hunting through the trees. And we landed in a little tree. Then, on the way back in the balloon man's van, Ajahn Passano said to you, That was a nice birthday present, Longpore. And you replied, Yes, I've always wanted to ride in a hot air balloon. I heard. You'd see them flying in England. Magical. It was like a child seeing the film Wizard of Oz. <laughs> but no one told me, Longpaw. I just knew. And it's experiences like that which have helped me to trust and let go. But it also seems to me that the Buddha was avoiding something by not mentioning this kind of thing in his teachings. Yes, like if I said it was the Devata in the balloon, and Ajahn laughed, or who arranged the cornflakes. That's what they say in Thailand. 
But then coming from a Western culture, we tend to go to the other extreme and dismiss all that completely. I don't believe it all. It's all rubbish. But now I don't deny anything because I don't know. If you try to explain it, higher energies, devatas, or what the Tibetan Buddhists say, you make too much of it. Instead, you just trust in awareness, and this is how it is. Then you can deal with the unknown without either trying to rationalise it or dismiss it. We want to define things, then we think they are real because we have definitions. It's like with awareness itself. You can think, how is it? And you want to define it. But how can you define this moment? You can't fit it into any definition. You just have to trust in the moment and that all conditions arise and cease. That's all you can know for sure. With Tibetan Buddhism, you're up against belief all the time, he explained. There is so much structure there and tradition. Theravada has kept it pretty simple. They have their own politics, but you don't have any of that complicated relations like tulkus, reincarnated lamas and such like. Some people do talk about previous lives and such, but it's not part of the Theravada teaching. Then the Thai forest tradition is really basic. Cut back to the four noble truths, suffering and the end of suffering. That's what made it so attractive to me. I didn't need to become more complicated. I was already a neurotic and complicated personality. I wanted to know how to get out of this sticky web of my own thoughts and fears. I didn't want more sticky filaments to attach to. The next afternoon, I returned to the same room. On one wall is a painting by George Sharp, who, as the chairman of the English Sangha Trust, had originally invited Ajahn Sumedha to England in 1976. George is a book illustrator with a remarkable talent to adopt another painter's style and produce utterly convincing copies. He's also Ajahn Sumedho's closest friend. This is a perfect copy of one of Rorick's best-known paintings, a view of Mount Kailash, with one difference. George has added the small figure of Ajahn Sumedho with pack and staff, walking the Kora. He painted it in the years between Ajahn Sumedho's two pilgrimages, and it used to hang in Ajahn's old kuti at Amravati. George allowed me to use it for the cover of this book, and now for this podcast. It was lovely to have it there on the day I showed Ajahn Sumedho the slides of his second pilgrimage with Hal Nathan and the American Party, the pilgrimage that happened after George painted it. Again, Ajahn Sumedho was delighted by the photos and the memories they brought up but this time the comments were very different. Ooh, for the first trip I was running up and down hills in Ashridge Forest to get fit. 
climb those mountains in Ireland through peat bogs with you and the way Andrew took us walking up through Humla. That way I was used to the altitude. But he made no preparation for the second pilgrimage and the party drove from Kathmandu straight up to Nyland, only just inside Tibet, but still at 4,000 metres, where they stayed two nights and did a short hike. You look really pooped in that photo after the hike, Longpore. I was. And on the Cora, were you at the bank? Yes. As we went on through the slides, he gradually admitted more about how difficult it was. It was embarrassing. Then, Panasara was unfit, but he was younger. And Beverly, she was my kind of age, but she was fit. She had all the hiking clothes. And I was always at the back. Just so many steps, then have to stop. And, and all these Tibetans zooming past. These little old ladies and whatnot. And he laughed at the humiliation of it all. And the food was dreadful. It was inedible. It wasn't even Tibetan food. It, it was just tasteless. And you lose your appetite when you're up high. Stale bread and cold boiled potato. I couldn't really eat it. And Panasaro. Yes, when Ajahn Panasaro mentioned the pink plastic sandwich bags to me, the look of horror on his face. He had a worse time than me. He's Thai. He's never done anything like that in his life. He told me he used to ask himself why I'd asked him to do it. For me, this was a dream I'd had. But for Parasaro, he just went because I asked him. But along with the difficulty, the other recurring theme was the effect of all the Tibetan devotion. It was the year of the water horse. So there were thousands of Tibetans from all over Tibet and China. With that many devotional Tibetans, you can't help but be inspired. That's what gave me the energy. Such a high feeling. We were carried on it. The ones doing the full bows, they looked blissful, happier than the rest of us. They had these leather aprons on, wooden gloves. It was very impressive. When I showed him the slide of him climbing the Dolmala Pass, ashen-faced, his response was, Oh dear. In the next slide, he was being helped. Oh, I was so grateful. These two young Tibetan men came and took my pack. They had shaved heads but, but lay clothes. They couldn't speak English, so they indicated they were monks, like me, but in disguise. They offered to carry my pack. Then they helped me all the way to the top. The slides of him climbing amidst hundreds of Tibetans affected Ajahn Samaida the most of any we looked at. Oh, it was so uplifting. All that devotion. So when you were going down the other side with Hal, you weren't likely to die as he feared. You were just utterly exhausted. Yes, really exhausted. 
But each time I stopped, the mind became bright. I could enjoy the mountain. Next day, though, I was too tired. I couldn't do any more, so I took the bus. <laughs> that would be one of the Chinese blue buses I saw the Indians boarding. The rest of them walked all the way to Darshan. And Panasaro? Oh, oh, he joined me. He was really glad it was over. <laughs> but I think, Longpaw, he's proud of it now. When he spoke, he produced that photo of him standing alone with the Tibetan plain beyond him and waited for the effect on me. No, 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 now he looks back. It was a powerful experience for him. And for a Thai, that's a very impressive photograph. And are you pleased you did it? Yes, very pleased. I fulfilled a dream, and so there's no regret. I don't mind hardship, I can deal with it. I was not expecting it to be easy. It was a challenge. So I am very grateful both to Andrew and to Hal. They made it possible. But I've never wanted to go again. <laughs> I then told Ajahn Sumedho about my own crossing of the Dolmala Pass, the resulting trauma from nearly dying, how I'd had no great release like the others at Lake Manasarova, but simply yearned to go home, and once home, how I'd needed to hide from people for two months. How the retreat I did next winter was just about processing that trauma. Then I told him about the surprise of the following retreat, a year later, before this trip to Thailand. I was still digesting the result. I'd spent much of that retreat sitting in the same seat, by a window overlooking the small back garden. It was somewhere on previous retreats I might just spend an hour sitting after the meal. My mind was completely spacious and empty most of the time, with a slight sense sometimes that I should be getting down to practice, which I would resist engaging with and at other times, a slight sense that this should be boring. Mostly, nothing happened in the small garden, an oblong of lawn surrounded with local shrubs and trees, winter bare. Small birds might occasionally flit about, and there was a wild hare, the Irish subspecies, with a touch of white to its rear. Some days it would hop into the garden from the rough mountain vegetation beyond to graze on the short grass. It could be there for hours, gently grazing, hopping forward to fresh grass to graze again, while I quietly watched it. Nothing seemed exceptional at the time, but afterwards I kept reflecting on this profound change to the way I did meditation. I asked Ajahn Sumedho if this was the result of the pilgrimage. Perhaps some of my drive had been worn away by the experience. One sunny day on the retreat, I'd climbed up the small mountain behind the cottage and went the whole way to the top with no sense I had to get there, simply enjoying where I was. Then I noted there was no whoosh of enjoyment when I did get to the top either. Was that the drive being worn away, I asked, 
I was surprised by his reply. Arjun Samedo said it was my bearing of difficult states of mind. That was the reason. Staying with the difficulty as I climbed Almala, staying with the trauma when I got down and home, doing a whole month retreat patiently observing the discomfort of not wanting to be present. After staying without reacting with all those difficult mind states, the mind could also not react when the pleasant was there. If you trust awareness with the most unpleasant states of mind, that's really good practice. Passionate states are more interesting. Anger, lust, but restlessness, boredom, lethargy, they are much harder to attend to. Then through the process of using them, you know the result. You realise that you don't have any objects. It was like a gift, Longpore, the whole of that month retreat. Yes, it's so simple that you realise why it's so difficult to understand. It's just being awake, rather than defining it or trying to be someone who is awake. Just consciousness, here and now. But we're so complicated, so brain-orientated. We want to define, understand, figure it out, do it. So we are still connected to time, to reality, to what we think we are. All that has to drop away by the wayside. There is consciousness and it is here and now. That's all. And then he added, the BBC have these programmes on consciousness. Psychologists and experts discuss it, but none of them have a clue really. And it's so simple. I saw that at Amravati years ago when I was trying to figure out consciousness. I wondered, what does the Pali Dictionary say about consciousness? I thought I'd better find out, and I was on my way over to the library, when suddenly I realised, I don't need to know what the Pali Dictionary says about consciousness. I'm conscious. It's as simple as that. It doesn't matter what the dictionaries say, or fraud, or young, or anyone else. It was then that I finally asked him the question that had originally brought me there. So what's the point of pilgrimage, Longpore? You have to really strive to do something that's not easy. That's not like staying in a five-star hotel. You're having to endure things you wouldn't normally have to endure in ordinary life. And you're going to holy places or sacred mountains, or whatever, something inspiring. Then inspired, you have to put forward the effort. When you have a drive through Mount Kailash experience, when you can go round in an oxygen bubble, it won't be the same, will it? That's already starting to happen with the Indians on the ponies and those oxygen bottles the guides have. Sure, it's going to happen and a McDonald's and everything. It all changes. But I still didn't have my answer, so I tried again. And the effect on the mind? What is the reason for pilgrimage there? He was silent for a bit, and then he said, It's just something we can do with life. 
better than sitting watching TV all day long. It's an opportunity to see through the unconscious driven quality. We are living, so we do something. With pilgrimage, we are going somewhere where everyone else is doing something spiritual. Like with Budgaya. When I went there last year, it was crowded. In the temples, there were Japanese, Chinese, Bhutanese, Indians, and all the Theravadans. Sri Lankans, Burmese, Thais, all chanting Pali but in different styles, and it was cheek by jowl. But I didn't feel confused or annoyed by it, because everyone was there for the same reason. I felt the same way round Mount Kailash with all those Tibetans. It was so inspiring. The devotion and the sense of faith, the power it gives them, and the joy they have in going round the mountain. It infects you. You don't get that in a shopping mall in Bangkok. That's a totally different feeling. <laughs> and he laughed. And that supportive atmosphere also helps you to be reflective, doesn't it? It's much harder to be reflective in a Bangkok shopping mall, he agreed. But then added, pilgrimage is a really good situation for looking at real difficulty and simply staying with it. Like you did. You had to go beyond what you thought you could do. That leads to confidence and trust that your perceived limits and what you think you are are not necessarily real. How we create ourselves is just based on memories of the past and the ego. But we can realise we can go beyond that. We have to depend more on Dharma than just personal feelings or comfort. So the result for me was not so much my drive had been reduced, but there was more trust in letting go of it. That's right, more trust. That's the path, really, the Eightfold Path. We are trusting Dharma. It's not something to obtain as an object, it's an insight. And that increases as we go beyond the limits of what we are used to and comfortable with as a personality. So each time we face things, there is a good result, and then more faith. Yes, that's right. And he told me that his recent years of living in his kuti, just pottering about, enjoying the result of all he'd done in England, was now changing too. He felt the need to do something again, so he'd agreed to teach. When I think about teaching, I think, oh, and he shuddered slightly at the effect of all those previous years of constant teaching. But when I do it, I find I like it. And he laughed. Thank you, Longpo. That was very helpful. But there's something else which I have to finish this account with. I'd asked him earlier where their pilgrimage ended in Kathmandu. Was it in Kopan Monastery again? Yes, with the Lama there. He was very sweet. He would hold my hand when we were walking along. But there are two photos of you at Viswa Shanti Vihar, where we stayed. Sugato and I stayed there after Andrew flew home. It's Taravada, and I knew the abbot, Venerable Yanapanika. He was with Dr. Rawata Dharma in Birmingham. 
And the nun, Sister Chini, she stayed at Amaravati. She's a character. And it's right near the airport. Then he added, You know, there was one last irony. Just as we were getting into the car for the airport, a Nepalese woman I'd never seen before presents me with a package, gift-wrapped. I take it, open it up, and it's cornflakes. A packet of cornflakes. And nothing could be funnier. He roared with laughter, then exclaimed, Nick, there's a jokester up there.